Let's thank the Lord for the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, enabling us to experience that same power. Father God, we just thank you for your goodness to us. Not only did you rescue us from your wrath, but you empowered us with the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that this morning you would open our eyes, awaken our hearts to embrace the truth of what we have just sung. We do not need to ask you for power. Your power lives in us. Lord, help us to live through the power of the Holy Spirit in us while we are on mission serving you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's one area that for sure, absolutely 100%, we need the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, and that is to be able to be Christ-like. To be Christ-like. I want you to take a second and think back to when you were a child. Who was it that you wanted to be like? Maybe it was your mom, maybe your dad, perhaps a grandparent, maybe an older sibling, uncle, aunt, Maybe you wanted to be like a teacher that you had, or perhaps a professional athlete. We all had people when we were growing up as a child that we wanted to be like. And when I was a child, there was two men that I wanted to be like. The first man, his name was Butt Ostesen, Uncle Butt as we knew him. He was a cattle farmer, but he was also an avid hunter. And when we would go to his farm and I'd sit in his living room, I thought, this is amazing. His living room looked like a hunting lodge. And I thought, man, as a kid, I remember sitting there going, wow, when I grow up, I would love to have a living room like this. My wife is very gracious, and the Lord has granted me the desires of my heart. <laughs> the second man I wanted to be like was my dad. He was my pastor for the first 18 years of my life. And uh, I remember on several occasions, my brother and I, we would sit, we had a Peugeot pickup truck. If you don't know what a Peugeot pickup truck is, you'll have to look it up. But it was an ugly yellow mustard Peugeot pickup. And uh, my dad had put benches in the bed of the truck and put one of those covers over it. And that's where we got thrown in. Mom and dad were in the front and we were on our own in the back cab when we were traveling. And I remember on several occasions, my brother and I, we held revival services in the back of that truck. We were pretending that we were running the church. And let me tell you, Pastor Jordan, Pastor Steve, I was a nasty worship leader when I was a kid. We had revival services. Hundreds of people came forward after our altar calls in the back of that Peugeot truck. I also can't tell you the number of times we baptized each other in swimming pools. <laughs> Why? We wanted to be like dad. My dad led worship. My dad shared the gospel. And my dad baptized people. So regardless of who you wanted to be like when you were a child, as a Christian, there is someone that all of us should have the desire to want to imitate, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our life ambition should be to partner with God's ongoing work in our lives through the Holy Spirit who makes us more and more free from sin to be more and more like Christ in our actual lives. And in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 8, verse 4, Luke highlights what Theophilus a man who we were introduced to last week, who was as much like Jesus as anyone in the scripture to that point. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Mark only preached on seven verses. You said six, eight to eight, four. Don't worry. We're not going to read them all. Okay? So this morning I want us to look at five areas in Stephen's life and ministry where he was like 
Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 6. We'll read verse 8 through 15. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. From this first section, I want us to notice three areas of Stephen's life and ministry where he was like Christ. And the first is that Stephen was empowered like Christ. We see that in verse 8. You'll remember from last week that Stephen was one of the seven men chosen by the church in Jerusalem to wait on tables to ensure that widows were cared for equally in the distribution of food. And we learned that these seven men had to be known. They had to be known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Then Luke notes in chapter 6 verse 5 that Stephen in particular was also a man full of faith. And now here in verse 8 we read that Stephen was also a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now, up to this point, it had only been the apostles who performed the miracles. But here we see that God gave the same power to Stephen. And Stephen was empowered like the apostles. Stephen was empowered like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke records in his gospel in chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was also a man full of the Spirit. There we read, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus was full of the Spirit. Not only that, Jesus was also a man full of wisdom. Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, referring to Jesus, writes this, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Reminding us that wisdom is not just a set of principles that we live by. Wisdom is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And as we are united, as Stephen was united to Christ, Christ makes us wise. And then finally in Acts chapter 2 verse 22, Peter states that this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So, the same power that enabled Jesus for his mission is what empowered Stephen to continue Christ's mission. And God's enabling power for us to continue the mission is still available today through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Listen to the good news in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 20. We just sang about it. Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power for us who believe is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That is power. And it's available for us. It's the same power that was given to every believer at the time of salvation and is available to us. This is why you'll notice in that verse, Paul did not pray that God's power be given to the believers. Rather, that they might become aware of the power that they already possess in Christ through the Holy Spirit and that they use it. So let me ask you, are you experiencing the power of God in your life through the Holy Spirit? Would others describe you, would you be known as a person full of spirit and wisdom? A person who's full of faith? A person who is full of God's grace and power? What are you known by? The second thing I noticed is that Stephen was empowered to speak like Christ. As we've been learning throughout our study in, in Acts, opposition is to be expected whenever Christ's church is advancing his mission through his power to reach those who are living in darkness. That is the whole purpose why we are putting all this effort into next week. It's so that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, might reach some who are living in darkness with the good news. And this time we see that Stephen was the target of those who opposed the message of this new life found in the resurrected Christ. And where did the opposition come from this time? It came from members of a Greek-speaking synagogue called the Synagogue of Freed Men. Because it was made up of former slaves from various locations. We read in verse 9, Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Now what's interesting to note is that Saul, who later became Paul, his hometown Tarsus was in the province of Cilicia. Meaning, he more than likely attended this synagogue. This was Saul's synagogue. And judging by what we're going to read later in the text, he was probably the ringleader of this opposition against Stephen because at that time Saul hated the gospel. This is why he and others, we read, disputed and argued for days with Stephen in the synagogue, focusing no doubt on topics like Christ's death, his resurrection, and the Old Testament teachings that the apostles and Stephen were proclaiming that point to Jesus as the Messiah. And take a look at verse 10. How was Stephen doing? They could not stand up against the wisdom. Notice, not Stephen's wisdom. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him to speak. What gave Stephen the ability to stand up confidently and speak against this group of angry religious bullies? Here's what it did. Stephen knew the scriptures. Stephen trusted the pro in the promises of Christ. And by faith, he opened his mouth and was empowered to speak with wisdom from the Holy Spirit. That day, Stephen experienced what Christ told his disciples would happen to them. In Luke chapter 21, verses 12 and 5, listen to what Jesus said. 
Before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry before how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Stephen was empowered to speak in the face of opposition with unanswerable wisdom, just like Christ. You remember from a young age, starting in the temple, when Jesus' earthly parents forgot him there. We see how Jesus was empowered to speak and throughout the Gospels, people's reactions to what he said was the same. Listen to some of the quotes. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So amazed that they left him and went away. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Stephen was empowered to speak like Christ. But not only that, Stephen, like Jesus, did not speak for his own glory. In John chapter 7, verse 16 and 18, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. I ask you this morning, are you a man and a woman of truth? Do you meditate on God's word day and night? Are you always prepared to give an answer and by faith open your mouth and speak the truth? Stephen was and he experienced the power to speak like his Savior. Thirdly, I want us to notice that Stephen was empowered to endure a trial like Christ. Once his enemies realized they could not stand up to the wisdom that the Spirit gave Stephen, they changed their tactic, which is how the enemy works. And they went from debating him to attacking his character and creating a smear campaign about him. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe in the workplace? Perhaps maybe even at home. In verse 11 we read, They secretly persuaded some men to generate some lies about Stephen, saying that they had heard him speaking blasphemous words against the temple and the law. Okay, so why is that such a big deal? Because that is a serious accusation. Punishable by death. And in verses 12 to 14, we see things escalate very quickly. They stirred up the people and the elders of the teachers we read of the law. They seized Stephen, hauled him before the Sanhedrin to face charges from false witnesses. Does that sound familiar? Listen to what we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59 to 61. Same counsel. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. 
Stephen was a victim of the same accusation his Lord had endured, allegedly making threatening statements against the temple and was hauled before the council for a statement that Jesus had already made about himself in John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus said, destroy this temple referring to his body, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Like Christ, the opposing Jews misunderstood Stephen's statements regarding the temple and thought he was making threatening statements against the temple building when he was actually referring to the body of Christ as it related to Christ's death and resurrection. And it was only after his resurrection that the disciples really understood the significance of that statement that Jesus made. You see, through the death and resurrection of Christ, temple worship in Jerusalem was destroyed. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying the way into God's presence was now open to all through a new and living way. And now the temple is reinstituted in the hearts of those who believe. We are being built into a spiritual temple called the church. So as we tell others the good news, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, we must be prepared. We must be prepared. People are going to twist our words, make false accusations, and spread all kinds of lies about us. It has always been that way, and it will always be that way until our King Jesus returns. But when those moments happen in your life, remember this. Followers of Christ experience a powerful closeness. And maybe you've experienced this. Followers of Christ experience a powerful closeness with God when one identifies with the suffering of our Savior. I want you to listen how Peter describes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 15. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. And listen to this last statement. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's powerful. The spirit of glory and God rests on you. And what did that look like for Stephen? Look at verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Pure, calm, composed, reflecting the presence of God, indicating Stephen's intimacy with God. Ironic that his enemies were falsely accusing him of disrespecting and demeaning Moses, yet Stephen in this incident is actually reflecting the likeness of Moses who had to cover his face with a veil because it shone so brightly after he spent time in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Brothers and sisters, spirit-empowered endurance during trial leads to great reward. Leads to great reward. Listen what is written in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you 
When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward, listen, in heaven. We have to alter our perspective on where we expect reward. It's in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Luke 21, 19, love this verse. Stand firm and you will win life. Stand firm and you will win life. So under personal attack, what does your demeanor reflect? Does it reflect a spirit-empowered endurance? Knowing that Christ whom we follow has gone before us, fully understands, and has himself endured. Stephen was empowered to endure a trial like Christ. Fourthly, Stephen was empowered to teach the scriptures like Christ. We don't have time today, but I would encourage you when you go home this afternoon, read all of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is an incredible sermon that Stephen preached, and it gives you an amazing history of God's relationship with how he established himself with his people. But I just want to make a few notes of what he said in that, because that will help connect our final point. So after being asked by the high priest in chapter 7, verse 1, are these charges true? In other words, the high priest was asking him, how do you plead, Stephen, to these accusations? Stephen responds like Jesus did in Matthew. He does not answer his question. Jesus did not answer by remaining silent. But Stephen, likewise, empowered by the Holy Spirit, did not answer directly his question. Instead, he preached the longest and one of the most important sermons in Acts. That's why you need to take time this afternoon and read it. Let's not forget, unlike the privilege I get this morning to get up here and stand behind this podium following a beautiful time of worship that we've had together, looking out on pretty much a mostly friendly audience. No, I'm just kidding. You all look friendly, all right? Eager to receive the word of God, Stephen stood up and had to respond to an angry council of men who were accusing him of blasphemous statements against the temple and the law with the hope that they would find enough evidence to kill him. That's the context Stephen was preaching in that day. How do you think you might respond in a situation like that? Well, Stephen responded in the way he did because he was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he knew what his mission was. His mission was to be Christ's witness. To testify to the truth of the risen Christ and the new life that is available in him. Stephen didn't try to creatively weasel his way out of this difficult situation. No. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he responded by telling the truth. Carefully retelling Israel's history, starting in the Old Testament, right up to the climax of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the truth that he spoke that day before the council would have been a direct threat to the three pillars of Judaism. The land the law, and the temple. And so they seized him. They physically put him before a council. They were revealing the type of weapons they were going to use. How did Stephen fight? He fought with the word of God. God's word breaks down strongholds. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with, the Bible, the scripture, are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, thank the Lord, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, Stephen sought to break down these three false strongholds which the Jews put their trust in and believed made them right before God. The misguided reverence for the land and the assumed status that brought them with God left little room for the saving work of Jesus the Messiah. That's why Stephen in his sermon, you'll read it this afternoon, referred to the life of Abraham, the 12 sons of Jacob, in particular Joseph, and the life of Moses to illustrate holy ground is where God meets his people and is not restricted to the specific boundaries of a piece of land. Stephen was letting the council know that land does not reconcile you to God. Neither does exalting the law or putting misplaced honor on prophets like Moses. Stephen built his argument against this particular stronghold using Moses' own words. He quoted in verse 37 Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses predicted that God would raise up for the Jews a prophet like me from among you, a direct reference to Jesus. The Jews' hope of redemption was not to be in Moses' law, but in Jesus himself. That is why Moses told them to look for another prophet. And thirdly, you'll read in his sermon, to assume that just because they had the temple meant that God must surely be with them and that they would enjoy his unconditional protection was false. Stephen directly attacks this foundation of false security in verses 48 and 50 of the sermon, where he quoted from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all things? Essentially, he tells the council that God, who is creator, cannot be confined to a building. His presence has always been with his people, and that presence predates the land, the law, and the temple. The whole storyline of Scripture shows how God is being with his people in various locations. And even when the temple is built, he reminds them the Most High does not dwell in the sanctuaries made with human hands. He was not saying that the construction of the temple was wrong, but they were wrong to think that God only lives there. And by believing this, the Jewish leaders, in fact, were actually the ones guilty of blasphemy by confining creator God to a space, to a building. And so turn with me in chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. Stephen, the accused through the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes the accuser. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. 
You have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. You are the lawbreakers because you have rejected Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and the culmination of the law and the temple. They had rejected God the same way their ancestors rejected him in the Old Testament. And he rebukes the council's ancestors for persecuting the prophets and ultimately they themselves for killing the one about whom the prophets ultimately spoke, Jesus, the righteous one. How he spoke shows something, doesn't it? Are you convinced of your mission assignment to be a witness, an ambassador, a minister of reconciliation? Stephen was. And if you say, yes, I am, then who are you sharing the true and trustworthy message of the gospel with? Stephen's spirit-empowered sermon led to the final way he was like Jesus. Fifthly, Stephen was empowered to suffer and die like Christ. One can't help but see the relationship between Stephen's death and Jesus. Although their two executions were not exactly the same, they bear similarities. Chapter 7, verse 54. And the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. The news that Stephen was proclaiming in his sermon, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. I'm sure they were yelling, blasphemer, blasphemer. Sound familiar? Crucify him, crucify him. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The angry mob, furious by Stephen's proclamation of the truth, like wolves, gnashed their teeth in anger and frustration. But like Jesus, Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit and had a heavenly perspective to his death. You remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In the face of intense opposition, the Holy Spirit empowered Stephen, listen, to look up. Look up. And continue to testify. God graciously grants Stephen a vision of heaven. Where he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Acknowledging him before the Father in heaven. Just as Stephen had acknowledged Jesus before these evil men on earth. His Savior was advocating for him. And the vision of the glory of God and the Son of Man standing to receive him empowered Stephen. And his testimony of what he saw enraged the wolves even more. 
You notice there that it says they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's going on there? Like baseball pitchers, like baseball pitchers do coming out of the bullpen. So that they can throw more effectively, Stephen's killers laid their coats at the feet of this young man named Saul. You see, stoning someone to death is not easy to do. The job is not done with the first few rocks. It's a long process. So these wolves, to prepare themselves for this workout, these witnesses stripped to the waist and got Saul to keep an eye on their things until they were done. This is the first mention of Saul in Scripture. And being the only one mentioned in this whole ordeal indicates he was probably the head of this whole ugly scene. And according to Acts 22 verse 20, Saul, who became Paul, never forgot this moment. But for Stephen, this moment meant coronation. Our Lord sat down when he ascended to heaven, but here we read he stood up to welcome into glory the first Christian martyr. Our brother Stephen died a horrible death, just like Jesus. But in the midst of excruciating suffering, the Holy Spirit empowered him to pray and die like Christ. And before he fell asleep, he offered prayers to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Prayers that reflected the prayers Jesus himself prayed to the Father while suffering on the cross. Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And earlier in verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Both Jesus and Stephen died on mission. Their last breath was praying for sinners to be forgiven. And what we should not miss is Saul himself would become the answer to Stephen's prayer. The head of this mob of murderers would soon find forgiveness through Jesus and become an undeserving recipient of Stephen's request that this sin not be held against him. Just as Stephen suffered and died like Christ, he will also one day be resurrected like Christ. I ask you this morning, do you have the same assurance of eternal life that Stephen was empowered to display when he fell asleep? God used Jesus' death and resurrection to provide the way for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Stephen, through the power of the Holy Spirit, committed himself to living and declaring that truth. And so as we prepare to remember and to celebrate what Christ willingly did for us so that we can be saved. I invite you to take some time, bow your heads, 
close your eyes and quietly, personally reflect on how much does your life look like Christ. As we get ready to remember and celebrate what Christ willingly did for us so that we might not only escape your wrath for our sins, but that we might have the power to live like Jesus. I pray in these quiet moments that you will convict us in areas of our life where we are not looking like Christ. Thank you that you have given us everything we need for godly living. Forgive us and help us, I pray. Stephen's life and death like Christ was used by God to advance the mission of spreading his good news out of Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth as prophesied by Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And on that day, the day Stephen was killed, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But what did they do? Chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The enemy could not thwart the purposes of God, so take heart, fellow witnesses. While suffering may be inevitable, God's mission is not only unstoppable, it is possible. On mission, let's be Christ-like. Trust God through the power of His Holy Spirit to use our lives to advance His kingdom so that more will be added to our number for His glory. Amen? Amen. Go and be Spirit-empowered witnesses. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.